Our sermon text for today is Genesis chapter 35. Genesis chapter 35, I'll be reading the the chapter beginning in verse 1. You'll remember that this is after the disaster at Shechem, and uh, Jacob is fearing what might happen as a repercussion of his son's slaughter of the men of Shechem. And so we'll pick up in chapter 35, verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who are with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Elon Bekuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. When Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, 
Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray for God's blessing upon his word. O Lord God, we give thanks to you for your faithfulness and for your word that you have spoken and recorded and brought to us that we might rest upon your promises and grace. We pray that you would bless your word to our good, to our benefit, to our growth in a knowledge of the truth, the truth about you. We pray that you would bless us as a congregation to be fed by the word, to bear good fruit, and to love one another and to serve you in our lives. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned in the previous sermon on Genesis 34 that Jacob had, for one reason or another, delayed in paying his vow, or he had partially paid his vow, but not fully. When he had come back to Canaan, when he dwelt in Shechem, he built an altar and he called God the God of Israel. That was part of what he had vowed, that he would continue to hold fast to God as his God, if God would bring him back in safety to Canaan. But he also had said that he would make Bethel, that stone that he had erected as a pillar in Bethel, that he would make it truly a Bethel. Bethel means house of God, that he would worship God there. Now, Jacob had, in the land, experienced relief from his trials, from Laban and from Esau, but it seems that he had grown somewhat lax in that peaceful time, a little too comfortable, perhaps. At Shechem, they met with a disaster that threatened their future, the future of Jacob and his household and the people of God. The sin of Shechem uh, in defiling Dinah and the arrangements afterwards led to the possibility of assimilation into the Canaanites, that they would become one people, uh, which would not have been good. The sin of Simeon and Levi led to the possibility of annihilation by vengeful Canaanites, that they were few in number and the Canaanites were many and they might come to wipe them out. Both of these were threats, but we saw in last chapter and then in this one, God delivered them from these threats, from these dangers. And by these trials and by his word that he spoke to Jacob, he would rouse Jacob from his negligence and set him out on his journey. And so in this chapter, we find that Jacob makes it back to Bethel, And then he makes it back to home. He makes it back to his father, Isaac, where he had started. Many years earlier, he had been with Isaac and his mother, Rebekah. He had to flee for his life from Esau. He had left Beersheba, where they were living at that point, went up to Bethel, where God had appeared to him, and he went to Paddan Aram. And now we have kind of the conclusion of this part of the narrative, that he returns to Bethel, that he returns to his father, Isaac. Um, and God brings him back home safely. 
So we find more precisely in this chapter that Jacob leads his household on a pilgrimage to Bethel, that Jacob fulfills his vow at Bethel and receives a reaffirmation of God's promises. And then thirdly, he makes it home to his father Isaac. There's also a lot of uh, other things that take place along the route. And we end up with a, uh, several landmarks, several marks upon the land that end up scattered throughout the promised land. Graves and pillars and trees that uh, would remind them of their inheritance in the land. In fact, it, with Rachel's pillar, it mentions it's still there to this day. Oh, to what day? Well, probably when Moses was writing this, as they were going to head back to the land, that her pillar's still there, and you're going to see it. When we learn from this passage to repent and to turn unto the Lord, as Jacob and his household did, to turn to him with holy consecration, for he is faithful and his promises are sure. Let's look first at the first five verses, the pilgrimage to Bethel, learning to repent and to follow the Lord. First, God speaks to Jacob. He says, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. In this way, God reminded Jacob to fulfill his vow. I appeared to you at Bethel. Do you remember that? Well, go back there. Go back to Bethel and make an altar to me there. Fulfill your vow. Make that a house of God by worshiping me there. In this way, the Lord also encouraged Jacob. Jacob was fearful for his life, and that was not the first time he had been fearful for his life. And God reminds him of an earlier time where he was running for his life. Go back to Bethel where, you f- where I appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. God had preserved him once before, and so he encourages him by calling that to mind. And in this way, in speaking to Jacob, the Lord also tested Jacob, impelling him to walk by faith. And God had spoken to Abraham, calling him forth uh, to follow him, to look to the inheritance. He had called forth others at other times, so he would call Jacob uh, to, to trust him, uh, to follow through, to go where he was leading. Likewise, in different ways, but similarly, the Lord has given his word to you. God has given you his word in scripture, and he exhorts you by it. Fulfill your vows. Follow the Lord. He exhorts you. He encourages you as well. See the mercies of God and what he has done for you in his word. And he also tests you by his word. He calls you forth to follow him, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Will you do so? by faith. So the Lord speaks to Jacob. Then Jacob prepared his household to go worship the Lord. He directs his household to put away their idols, uh, to, to repent, and to come with him to Bethel. He directed them to put away foreign gods. They are foreign to them. These gods did not belong to them. They were not their god. There is no place for rivals to God among his people. There ought to be no other gods before him. That will later be, and already was in effect, uh, the first commandment. I have delivered you, God says, 
have no other gods before me. Single-minded devotion to him is called for. That's why in Deuteronomy it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Therefore, we ought to have single-minded devotion to this one God, uh, to put his word as it is between our eyes and upon our hands and upon our city gates and upon your household doors, that it permeates all of your life, that all of it ought to be into the service of, of one God. This is a very similar passage to Joshua 24, where Joshua calls the people to renew their covenant with God, to serve Him in sincerity and faithfulness. Choose this day whom you will serve. What about the gods that Abraham served beyond the river, or the gods in the land whom you dwell? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so Jacob said the same thing. Or 1 Samuel 7, which we read earlier, where Samuel leads the people to put away their foreign gods to turn to the Lord with their heart. Jacob also directed them to put away their earrings and to purify themselves and to change their garments. These were signs of humiliation before God, repentance unto God, and renewed consecration. Idols had been brought among them. We know that Rachel had stolen her her father's household gods, More idols might have crept in along the way. Probably when they plundered Shechem, they would have uh, come across household gods and idols there as well. Also, the slaughter of Shechem had defiled the camp. This was a thing that ought not to have done. And uh, Simeon and Levi had killed the men of Shechem. And so now it's a day of humiliation and fasting, if you will, a day of repentance was proclaimed by Jacob where they would put away their earrings. They would purify themselves, perhaps uh, ritually, but those outward signs were to be signs of what inwardly they were doing, that they were to reconsecrate themselves to God, to confess their sins, to seek his purification, to change their garments, to put off and to put on. Perhaps, oh, and then they actually do so. Jacob tells them to do that, and they did. They give all the foreign gods that they had, not just some, but all of them that they had, they give to him, and they bury, and they leave them behind. Perhaps that disaster and danger at Shechem had awakened them to the need for repentance and faith in in God. So they turned from idols and their sin unto God. Jacob led them in the worship of God, preparing them, leading them to Bethel as a good father, as a good pastor. The way Jacob prepared and led his family, I think, can be both applied today to the family and to the church. At the time, the two were pretty much combined. They were not as well distinguished at that day as it is today, or as even would be in the day of Moses. When the church grew larger, it became more distinguished as an institution from the family. Certain responsibilities were given to ministers, but the family did not become a secular institution. It's in the days of Joshua that he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's in the days of Moses that he says, teach these things diligently to your children as you walk by the way and as you rise up and you get down. The family continued to be a body which ought to worship the Lord both in instruction and worship, was to be given in the home as well as in the congregation. So 
twofold application. First of all, fathers today, or those who are heads of households, should learn from Jacob to lead their households to serve the Lord. And you don't have to wait for a crisis like Jacob did. Put away evil practices, evil influences, evil idolatry from your homes. Lead your homes in repentance and renewed consecration to the Lord. If the king of Nineveh did so, how much more should you? Uh, take, Take charge and lead them in this way. Lead your family in worship at home from day to day. And then prepare your family to go to church for the worship of the assembly as Jacob prepared his household to go to Bethel. Remember that the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, who is it especially directed to? Of course, everyone, all the people of God, all people on earth, we might say, are bound by it, but who is it particularly addressed to? Well, people who have sons and daughters, uh, to, to heads of households. The charging heads of households to provide rest to those who are under you, because people who have positions of responsibility are the most likely to make it harder for others to keep the Sabbath day holy. You ought to give rest to your household and provide for that plan ahead, but also to see to it that they keep it holy. So observe the Sabbath day in a purposeful manner together. Likewise, elders and pastors should teach and direct the church, as Jacob did, to put away foreign gods, to put off the sins of the old nature, to put on the ways of Christ, to repudiate sins and to put them all away. We call you to worship the Lord, to humble yourselves before Him, to hear His word, to give Him thanksgiving and praise to observe the Sabbath day, to not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. This is the way the household of God ought to be be kept. And learn from the household, not just from Jacob, but learn from his household to put away the sins in your lives. They creep in. You have to be on your guard and continually renewing, recommitting yourself to God, to turn from your sin and to turn unto God. Let each Lord's Day be a good reminder, like this pilgrimage to Bethel, to repent of your sins, to return to the Lord, to recall His mercies, and to recommit yourself to Him. That your whole life, therefore, might be lived in the light of it. Now, Jacob and his household, after they've prepared themselves, they then go. They go to Bethel. And they go in faith with courage. It took courage. It took courage to travel. They were already afraid that they were going to be slaughtered by the Canaanites, and now going as a a caravan to Bethel made themselves more vulnerable. It'd be easier for them to be ambushed, for them to be attacked. They couldn't fortify themselves. Jacob's fears were inspired by the reasonable expectation of violence from the Canaanites. Traveling increased their weakness. But his faith rested in God. And so his faith overcame his fears. And they pressed on ahead. You also must follow the Lord by faith, trusting in his word. It will be tested by trials. How will you rise above fear and follow the Lord with courage? But by faith. As Hebrews says, you have need of endurance. And how did the saints of old endure They did so by faith. Though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, 
you may do so without fearing any evil. Why? Because of your faith that the Lord is with you and is your shepherd. Psalm 23 says, Jacob probably felt like that, but he trusted in the Lord as a shepherd who had delivered him from trouble already. And then, as we find in verse 5, the Lord preserved them from their enemies. The people of Jacob were few in number. They had provoked the wrath of the Canaanites, but God put his terror upon the Canaanites so that they did not touch Jacob's household. As Psalm 105 says, God says, Do not touch my prophets. Do not touch my anointed ones. Rebukes kings on their accounts. He is faithful as their covenant lord and champion to defend them. Even though they well deserved to suffer for their consequences, God would see to it that they would be taught they would be trained, but that they would be preserved. A church would continue to exist. Those promises given them would be fulfilled. This demonstrates how God cares for his church. God will protect his church. He gave his own son unto death to deliver his church from sin. And then he enthroned his son as well, giving him all authority in heaven and on earth, enthroning him as king with all authority to rule and to defend his church, to bring you to that safe haven, to establish a visible church on earth that would endure to the end of the world. He will bring you personally, if you believe in him, through every danger and snare to glory, and he will preserve his church on earth from all who seek its destruction. He can do that in many ways, but he can put the terror of God upon the enemies of the church that they might not Uh, annihilate it. The Lord preserved them from their enemies. So they journey to Bethel. They go on this pilgrimage to build an altar there to God. In verses 6 through 15, we find that they worship God at Bethel. The altar is built, and there God speaks again to Jacob. We learn to worship the Lord, to rest upon his promises. In verses 6 through 7, we find that he builds the altar. He called the place Bel, sorry, El Bethel, or El Bethel. Uh, El, they're both referring to God. God, the God of Bethel, or we've, we're going to translate the whole thing, God of the house of God. Uh, but it's referring to the God who appeared to me at Bethel. Not only is God the God of Israel, that's what he named the altar at Shechem, God the God of Israel, but here God the God of Bethel that he is worshiping the one who revealed himself at Bethel, that Lord that appeared at the top of the ladder descending from heaven with angels ascending and descending upon it. What had God promised him? God had promised that, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So likewise, Jacob recognizes that, that he comes to worship the God of Bethel back in Bethel. As verse 3 says, Jacob described God as the one who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. He said he'll be with me wherever I go, and he has been with me wherever I have gone. He's brought me out of the traps of Laban and from his pursuit of me, from the hands of Esau, who sought my life, from the hand of the Canaanites now, who could be expected to annihilate me from every danger. And so he worships him. Now, in verse 8, we find that Deborah dies. Not Deborah the judge, Deborah the nurse. 
she's named here. We had heard of her back in chapter, what, 24? Much earlier, that when Rebecca had come as a young woman to marry Isaac, that she came with her nurse. And now her nurse appears now many years later as being with Jacob and dying at Bethel. She died and was buried outside of town. Uh, She was the nurse who had come with Rebekah, with Abraham's servant. At this point, she would have been quite old, maybe 170 years old. The oak that she was buried under was called Alon Bakuth, or Oak of Weeping. And so that's a testimony to how she was beloved to Jacob, at the least, if not the whole household. Here was one uh, matriarch, one a woman who had seen much, who had gone from beyond the river to the promised land with Rebekah, and somehow ended up with Jacob. Perhaps when Jacob came back to the land in those years, she had journeyed there to be with him. But even though Rebekah had probably died at this point, yet Deborah was this close link to Jacob's beloved mother, uh, someone that had known his mother since she was an infant and had been with him now as they came to Bethel. In fact, Deborah the judge and prophetess that we find in the book of Judges could have been named after this Deborah. She would have heard, her parents would have heard this story about Rebecca's nurse, and Deborah the judge lived between Bethel and Ramah, not far from where this this Deborah was buried. Then in verses 9 through 13, God appeared to Jacob and reaffirmed his covenant promises to him. We have a pattern here with Abraham. God spoke to Abraham several times, and at the end of many trials, after he was willing even to sacrifice his own son at Mount Moriah, uh, we have a final uh, uh, swearing of these promises to confirm them to Abraham. Likewise with Isaac. As the famine came upon Isaac, God appeared to him and said, Don't go to Egypt. I'm going to give all these things to you. Uh, reaffirming the covenant with him, but then after he goes through Gerar and he's delivered and he finds water and he goes to Beersheba, then God appears to him again at the end of those trials and reaffirms his promises. Now, to Jacob, God had uh, reaffirmed that Jacob was the heir of these promises. He gave his promises to him uh, at Bethel and through his father, but now after many trials, uh, he comes to him again and, and confirms these things. God blessed him as he had blessed Adam and Eve and as he had blessed Abraham. Uh, He would bless them and not curse him because uh, he had shown him grace. Changes his name again to Israel. God strives or strives with God and prevails. God says then his name. I am God Almighty, even as he had revealed himself to Abraham. And then he says, be fruitful and multiply. Have we heard that before? Yeah, as a, as a blessing of God that he had given to Adam and Eve and then later to Abraham. So he gives it to Jacob. Be fruitful and multiply. He shall become a nation and he shall become a company of nations. Of course, the nation that comes from Israel is called Israel. <laughs> it gets known as the children of Israel. That's, that's their name. And, but this, this nation becomes in time a company of nations a church that is of many nations, as through Christ all the nations of the earth are blessed. And so we have in the New Covenant a church of 
many nations, a company of nations. It is of one company. It is one flock, one uh, shepherd that oversees it that is joined now to Israel through faith in Jesus Christ. Grafted onto the olive tree. Just as Abraham would be the father of many nations, so would Israel. And not only that, but kings would come from his body. There would be a physical descendant of Israel who would become king. Actually, several kings. Kings shall come from you. Before we get to the book of Kings or the book of Samuel, we have already reference to the fact that kings will arise from Israel. Uh, We would have King David. We'll have King Solomon. We'll have the kings of the kingdom of Israel who would give peace to the people and would defend them. But then, of course, we have the final king who reigns forever, and that is Jesus Christ, the offspring of Israel. And then he also gives the land, the land that had been given to Abraham and to Isaac. All of it goes to Jacob. It doesn't go to Esau. Esau gets his own land outside the promised land. Jacob is the full heir, and he and his offspring receive the promised land. This land was a down payment on the whole earth, and it's a type of the kingdom of God and our everlasting inheritance in it. And so God would provide an inheritance for Jacob and for his offspring. God is still fulfilling these promises. He blesses those who share the faith of Israel. Uh, He blesses them through Jesus Christ. Blesses and not curses. He has raised up Jesus as the King of Israel, as the one who brings salvation and gives them the fulfillment of these promises, who brings together a company of nations from throughout the world, a a church uh, which receives blessing, the blessing of Abraham. Having received these promises, then Jacob reconsecrates a pillar and renames the place Bethel once again. He receives these promises and gives honor to God who appeared to him. Likewise, we should trust in, in the promises of God in his covenant that we receive through Jesus Christ and through faith. Finally, in verses 16 through 29, there is the journey home. And the lesson here is that trials call for endurance to the end. We have beginnings, we have ends, Benjamin is born, but several people die. It's a little miscellaneous, a little, uh, a bunch of things happening, but let's briefly go through them. First, there's the birth of Benjamin and the death of Rachel. Rachel receives an answer to her prayer. She had asked at Joseph's birth for another son, and God gives her another son, uh, Benjamin. Yet she also gives birth in great pain and dies. Jacob changes the name of her son from Ben-Oni, which apparently means son of my sorrow, but possibly could also mean son of my strength. But he he changes it to the less ambiguous and more positive son of my right hand, or son of the right hand, which is Benjamin. Names the son Benjamin, and that's how he'll be known. Rachel's death sets the stage for what will come. Jacob's affections now that had been placed on Rachel will now be placed on Joseph and Benjamin. 
they are all that he will have left of Rachel. And so the next part of the story, once we get beyond Esau, will be on Joseph in particular and what happens to him and uh, his relationship with his brothers. Benjamin's also the one that's born in the land of promise. Another uh, mark of uh, upon the promised land, both in Rachel's tomb and pillar and Benjamin's birth, he was probably born in his future inheritance, although there's a little debate about where precisely this birth happened, whether it was in Ramah, north of Jerusalem, or whether it's closer to, Be- to Bethlehem, south of it. Then we have a distressing situation in verse 21, or 22, that when Israel lived in Eder, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. This was a dreadful sin. It was sexual immorality. It was adultery. It was incest. It was dishonored appearance. On top of that, he was the firstborn son and so abused his, his privilege as well. There's all around, this was a, a, a very bad sin. Sins are worse when it's more than one sin. Uh, when you add uh, aggravations upon aggravations, and this was one that not even the Gentiles would tolerate. Uh, and was committed by Jacob's firstborn son, which he likely had many hopes fixed upon, um, or at least would have had the preeminence. Later, we find Jacob's words regarding Reuben in Genesis 49. There, uh, I'll go ahead and turn to it since it's not very far away. He says to Reuben, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Reuben proved to be unstable as water. Perhaps this is somewhat of a, a power play. It's a little hard to know his motivations, but he was not a faithful son at this time. And he was disqualified from the preeminence he would have had as the oldest child, as the oldest son. Now, Jacob did not pronounce this until his deathbed, but the family probably realized that this could disqualify him from the right to the firstborn, or at least the reader of this might recognize that. And so that leaves the door open again for what comes next. Which son will become preeminent? Which son will receive the right of firstborn. Which son will have kings arise through his line? Will it be Simeon and Levi? Well, they were already did something which they will be disqualified for, slaughtering the men of Shechem. Will it be Joseph? Will it be his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh? Will it be Judah? And through the line of Judah? Yes, we know where the story is going. Eventually it will be the line of Judah, but we're not there yet. But again, this sin of Reuben is mentioned because of the significance for what will happen. God is already working his plan to raise up the Redeemer through the line of Judah. The whole, all 12 sons of Jacob are listed here. And then we find in verses 27 through 29, the return to Isaac and Isaac's death. Isaac had moved from Beersheba now to Mamre, where his father and mother were buried, where his wife had been buried, Rebekah. Abraham had sojourned there. Isaac had sojourned there. Now Jacob returns there with his 12 sons. And not only does Jacob see his 12 sons, but Isaac sees his grandchildren. 
He sees 12 sons as his grandsons. His descendants are multiplying. Not only had Jacob, his son, returned in safety to the promised land, but he brought with him 12 sons. This must have been a comfort to Isaac in his final years, that he saw God fulfilling his promises, that he would have heirs who would receive these promises. Esau had left, Jacob had been gone, but now he had returned. Isaac had invoked blessings upon Jacob by faith, and now he saw those blessings begin to take effect. Now, the passage wraps up this part of the story. Jacob actually, Isaac actually lives about over 10 years after Jacob's return. Um, when you calculate the ages, he lived to the age of 180 years. He doesn't die right after Jacob gets back. They have about 10 or 15 years more to go. But as this part is being wrapped up, the, the passage jumps ahead to his death, and Isaac dies. He dies in faith. Uh, he looks forward in hope. In speaking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Hebrews says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. When he was buried, he was buried by his sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau had said that he was going to kill Jacob once his father died, but now they were together and at peace. Esau did not try to kill Jacob, not like Cain. They were at peace. In fact, they were at peace just like Isaac and Ishmael were together when they buried their father Abraham, though there had been tension between them previously. Not only was this a blessing of God, that God had delivered Jacob from the hostility of Esau, but I think Moses was teaching the people of Israel to seek to be at peace with their unbelieving kin. When they come to the promised land, they say, don't just barge into the territory of the Edomites and the Ammonites and the Moabites. They ask permission to cross their borders. They recognize that God had given them their own inheritance. Only later when the Edomites become enemies that are attacking Israel, do they conquer them. But they're being taught to seek peace with their unbelieving kin, such as the unbelieving descendants of righteous Lot, the Moabites and the Ammonites, the Ishmaelite desert tribes, and the Edomites. You also are called to seek to be at peace with your neighbors, with your relatives, even if they are unbelievers. We have lessons here among Esau and Ishmael and, and others that are quite relevant for us today as well. As long as it depends on you, seek to live peaceably with all. Now later, what, how does the book of Genesis end? It ends with another burial of another group of sons who had also been at odds with each other, very much so, that end up being at peace. Jacob is buried by his sons, and Genesis ends on the note of reconciliation, in that case among the people of Israel itself. How much more should you seek peace among the household of faith? There's a lot of things then in this passage of Scripture that we can learn from. We find God's promises renewed once again. It's not only an Abrahamic covenant, but it's also an Isaacian covenant and a Jacobean covenant, that this covenant is from generation to generation uh, to those who receive it by faith. God is the God of His people and their children. To a thousand generations, He will maintain His church. He will deliver them from their enemies, 
He will make them a vast company of nations. He will raise up his king as he has, King Jesus, from the flesh and blood of these patriarchs of old. And he now sits at his right hand to rule and defend and to save his church. So, put away the foreign gods. Put away the sins that cling so closely to you. And return to the Lord, for he is good and his mercy endures forever. Do not grow sluggish. Do not grow lax. Press onward with endurance to the end. The Lord will not forsake you. He will answer you in the day of distress and will be with you wherever you go. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your mercy and for your faithfulness that you show this mercy to us and to our children. We pray that you would work and grow and and strengthen the saving faith that we might embrace these things, even seeing them from afar and embracing them and holding them close to us, that we might know your salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord, that your kingdom would come uh, already in, in many ways, that you would rule in our hearts and rule on earth, and that you would bring that everlasting kingdom of glory uh, with your Son, that we might uh, participate and enjoy that inheritance that you have in store for us. We pray that you would give us endurance and courage to follow you uh, through this life and through its dangers, and we pray that you would glorify your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.